Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the LA area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Take out your Bibles, get your swords out, get ready to do some war, get ready to battle in the spirit realm, as we saw this morning. I want to take us back a little bit and remind you that all scripture is given for doctrine, for reproof, and correction in righteousness is authored by the Holy Spirit. And it is for our understanding, our knowledge, our wisdom, the ability that we would have to discern of the times, the seasons, there are so many reasons that we could uh, give for why the study of God's word is important. And very specifically, because we're going to find this in verse 14, sometimes what the Lord is sharing with us is for the future. And even some of what is still future to us tonight, even though we are now Uh, some 2,500 years advanced of the time and the age of Daniel. You might remember in our last study here in chapter 10 that there was a man that was identified, and Daniel said in verse 5, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of Uphaz, and his body was like beryl and face like the appearance of lightning, and his eyes torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze, and in color, and the sounds of his words were like the voice of a multitude. And it became clear to us that that's speaking in a pre-incarnate form of the Lord Jesus himself. Now I want to make this point clear because that person is still in view in the remainder of the chapter as we pick up tonight in verse 14. And so it is going to become very clear, and the reason that this is a little easier for us to do in our day and time, uh, when Martin Luther, John Calvin, and the likes of those who were alive during the Reformation period were searching the scriptures, they did so with manuscripts, and they did so with books. In other words, as they were looking at it, Uh, When I first began to teach the Bible, uh, there were no computer programs for for the searching of the scriptures. Uh, They didn't exist. They came came into vogue sometime after my initial uh, time in ministry. And so uh, I have grown up in that period of time where we have the benefit of having databases for virtually every piece of manuscript evidence that exists in the entire world for all of the books of the Bible. And so if I want to search the original manuscripts of Daniel, I can actually do that. If I want to search the entire Dead Sea Scrolls, I can do that. If I want to look in the original language of the Septuagint, I can do that. If I want to search a phrase, I can do that. If I want to search a verse, I can do that. If I want to search a book, I can do that. I can do a lot of things today that Daniel could not do. I can do a lot of things today that the gospel authors could not do. In fact, I can do a lot of things today that even 30 years most people ago people could not do unless you were very, very in tune to some very specific databases that were not available to the public. 
And so we have the benefit of being able to check these things one against another and to look at the totality of Scripture. So if I want to find out how many times the word love is mentioned in the Bible, I can simply type it in in English, and then I can do a cross-reference to the original language in the Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic. I can do a lot of things. The reason I'm sharing this with you is when Daniel received this vision, he got this vision himself. It was then jotted down, and it became the basis of knowledge that would not be searchable for a very, 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 very long time. And we're told that it was for the future. So when Martin Luther began to look at the scriptures and he came to the conclusion that God was done with the Jewish people, and he began to teach what we would call Reformation theology, when he began to very specifically talk about replacement theology, that the church had replaced the Jewish people as God's chosen people, he did so without the benefit of being able to cross-reference an awful lot of material in an instant. And so he had no way of referencing simultaneously all of the books of the Bible. He would have had to meticulously go back, read through an actual manuscript, jot down notes, and then cross-reference those things. It took a great deal of time. And so we have to be careful about placing fault or blame on those that we would call reformers or those that put forth a doctrine that we call replacement theology uh, that began during the period that we know as the Reformation in roughly 1500 50 A.D. This particular passage of Scripture, because of the way it was interpreted by the Reformers, and because in 1611, King James, uh, if you have a King James Bible, whether that's the old King James or the new King James, you have that Bible specifically because King James decided that he wanted an English version of the Bible for the common person. And so when it was translated, taking the Wycliffe and the Tyndale translations and making them a common translation called the King James translation, they did so with a little bit of bias. They were biased in exactly the same way that Martin Luther and John Calvin were biased. They believed that God was done with the nation Israel. And the chief reason was they were responsible for cruci crucifying the Lord Jesus that it was Caiaphas and Annas and the religious leadership of the Jewish people that were responsible for the death of Jesus. This actually carried over all the way until the Second World War. In fact, Hitler got some of his reasonings for the destruction of the Jewish people from the church. And so when you read your Bible, there are still some places, and this happens to be one of them, uh, where there are a little bit of what we would call errors that still could be sorted out in the English language. And we're going to find out that there's no change between the man that's mentioned in verses 5 and 6 and the rest of the chapter, or what we would call chapter 10. And so as we begin in chapter, in chapter 10, verse 14, a little bit of history of why we're going to look at this from a very specific reasoning because we now have the ability to look at the totality of Scripture and ask ourselves, is there a reason that if you happen to have, as I do, a New King James Bible, 
instead of capitalizing my Lord there in verse 19, it is uncapitalized, should that be the case? Because normally when Lord is capitalized in an English translation, it's referring to God. In this case, it is still not. This is a remnant of that little bit of bias against the Jewish people that has its roots primarily in the Reformation theology. And so would you join me? We'll pray and we'll pick up actually in verse 14 now. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. And we pray that you'd speak to us. Lord, help us to understand uh, your word was meant to be understood. You wrote it for a purpose. It contains information that is uh, fit for the hearer. And so we pray that you would instruct your church, cause us to grow and be strengthened in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 14, now I am here. And you notice that it begins by referencing someone's here. That someone is the same one who was in verses 5 and 6, the man. And so this is, in essence, the purpose of the man. So this man comes, it's very clear, if you just look at it in context, that this is not a normal man. Normal men do not get described as looking like one who's made out of gold and precious stones and glows. And so it becomes clear, at least in the first part of this chapter, that this is a pre-incarnate visitation of the Lord Jesus. It says, now I am here to explain what will happen to your people. Who's your people? Who's Daniel's people? That would be the Jewish people, amen? Not the church. The church hasn't come into fruition yet. It doesn't exist yet. It won't be uh, known as the church for another almost 600 years. And so this person who's speaking in verses 5 and 6 says, I'm here to explain what will happen to your people in the future. This is the correct rendering of the original language, the Hebrew that this was written in. Remember the latter part of this particular book, the first nine chapters written in Aramaic, the language of the exile. The last would be the language that the Jewish people would speak after they returned to, from the captivity in Jerusalem. And so in Hebrew, it does say that this is what will happen to your people, Daniel's people, in the future. And it's being spoken of by a pre-incarnate visitation of the Lord Jesus himself. For this vision concerns a time yet to come. And in case you didn't get it the first time, it's repeated. In essence, it's rephrased. And so as you look at what follows the whole rest of the book of Daniel, it is a vision of the future of the children of Israel for a time that was beyond Daniel's time and I believe is still largely yet future. And so he goes on to say, verse 15, now the rest of chapter 10. And while he was speaking to me, the same guy, the he is the one who looks like uh, a vision that we have in the book of Ezekiel for God himself. While he was speaking to me, I looked down at the ground, unable to say a word. Now, this is a very common thing that happens when one encounters deity. Amen? People fell on their face. In fact, the word worship, as you look at it, and whether it's shakah in Hebrew or whether it's proskuneo in Greek, those two words mean to be bowed down. So normally when someone encounters deity, it causes one to be bowed down. Your natural response 
is to be bowed down before deity. I looked at the ground, unable to say a word. And then the one who looked like the man, looked like a man, touched my lips. And I opened my mouth and began to speak. This is the same man that's speaking in the previous part of this chapter. And I said to the one standing in front of me, I'm terrified by the vision I have seen, my Lord. And here's where it starts to have the bias. Notice it's not capitalized, even though there is very sufficient reason for it to be so. And I am very weak. How can someone like me, your servant, talk to you, my Lord? My strength is gone, and I can hardly breathe. And so as you look at this, the, the original language here is translated to make it look like this might be a man, when in fact, I think we can prove, and we'll do that shortly, that this is still the Lord himself speaking, and that is the reason for the words that are used here. And then the one who looked like a man touched me again, and I felt my strength returning. Don't be afraid, he said, for you're dearly loved by God. Be at peace, take heart, be strong. And he spoke these words, and suddenly I felt stronger and said to him, Now you may speak, my Lord, for you have strengthened me. In other words, he was prepared to hear, and he replied, Do you know why I've come? For soon I must return to fight against the spirit prince of the king of Persia, and then against the spirit prince of the kingdom of Greece. But before I do that, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. And again, the book of truth will be interesting and we'll digest that a little bit. And then probably in parentheses, because it, this is not found in the best of the manuscripts, but it does fit the context. There is no one to help me because we've already learned that one of the ones that was helping him was Michael. No one to help me against these spirit princes except Michael, your prince. More vision was about to come. Daniel's getting this picture of the latter days. And so uh, as that word that's used there, it's actually a single word that's translated latter or last days is another way. The, the Hebrew word treksa that's, that's there, it, it always is extended out beyond the time that one lives in. When you use it, it is always beyond where you currently are. It's never intended to be uh, understood as, as right next to you or near you. And so we see this man begin to kind of unfold before us. And as Daniel bows his face to the ground, which is an act of worship that we would normally reserve for the Lord, he uses these words, me or my, which is yinda in Adonai, my Lord, which appear in, in several passages in the Old Testament. And there they are used as if someone would be a lord or someone would be a prince or a king. That is, that is also true. But that's not the only place that you find these words, these exact same words. And so when the King James translators looked at this, they simply chose between one rendering and another rendering based on their already existing prejudice. They did not do so based on the context. They did not do so on what you actually see and read within the context of the passage and also within its setting within this particular book. And so... As we look at this particular passage, I, I think that it is clearly not what the King James translators were getting at, which is this is just another any old lord or any old sir or maybe an angel or someone else. 
because the way this is phrased, this was not a region of the earth, this wasn't a prince of the, of the people, this was a prince from somewhere other than earth. And so uh, as you get through this passage and you finish this entire piece, you have to look elsewhere in scripture to see if there's a reason to interpret this the way it appears to be needed, which is this is an incarnate, this is a pre-incarnate a vision of the Lord Jesus himself. And so to do that, we can look at other places where we find the, this exact phrase. Uh, there in Joshua chapter 3 and verse 13, it says it's the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, or my Lord, and the same words are used of all of the earth. Who's the Lord of all the earth? Well, that's very clear. That's God. Amen? So exact same words, exact same order. And as Daniel uses it to say, my Lord, that's exactly the words that Thomas used when he says, my Lord and my God, they're in John 20. And so as you, as you think about this, there's one final and very important passage is found in Joshua chapter 5 and verse 13. And now when Joshua was nearing Jericho and he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a sword drawn... And he, he asked, are you for us or are you for our enemies? Neither is what that being replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. So the description of that person is, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Then Joshua fell down on his face and began to worship before this being. What message, he says, does my Lord exact same words have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the ground on which you stand is holy. And, and so there is a reason for us to know and believe that these words that are translated here, though the King James translators tried to kind of build in a bias based on what they previously believed about the Jewish people so that this could be attributed to the rise and fall of Antiochus Epiphanes and to fall in line with all-millennial uh, all uh, eschatology. In other words, that there would be no millennial reign of Christ. The next thing on God's agenda would be the second coming of the Lord and that God did not have a plan for the Jewish people that was future. He was done with them. They left this not capitalized, so that one could kind of go, well, is this a person, is this a man, is this an angel? I believe it is in fact the Lord. And the context and the text itself seems to clearly indicate that. When you look at this passage, you also see that what, this, what, da what Daniel is doing, what Joshua did, what Isaiah the prophet did, and Isaiah 5 is, is he's con confronting uh, this vision of the Lord. He says, woe is me, I'm undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and dwell. And when that angel touches his lips, Isaiah falls on his face. And so I believe this is a powerful touch from the Lord himself. And so the rest of the passage we can look at, I believe in that way, so that we can understand what God's trying to say. What is he trying to say to the people? What does he want them to know? What does Daniel want, what is he going to want Daniel to know about the future? And this is really setting up chapters 11 and 12. 
Notice the powerful touch of this man. What happens when this man touches Daniel? Verse 18, and then the one who looked like a man touched me again and I felt my strength returning. This is like my, my strength is finally coming back. What does he say? Don't be afraid. You ever heard that phrase before? <laughs> Who's it always attributed to? The Lord. Because he's the only one that can cast out all fear. Amen? He's the only one that can strengthen us when we're, when we're weak. He's the only one, notice what it says, be at peace, take heart, be strong. These are all things that only come from the right relationship that we have with the Lord. The only time I have true peace is when I'm in the Prince of Peace. Amen? The only time that I can say that I'm truly strong is when he is strong in me. Amen? The only way that I can be loved by God is being found in God, in Christ Jesus. Amen? And so it becomes very clear that Daniel's eyes are being fixed on heaven. He's saying, look, this is, this is going to come at a later time. Don't be afraid. And as he spoke those words, he suddenly felt stronger. And now, now Daniel finally has enough strength to even hear what the Lord has to say to him. And so this is the third time that this pre-incarnate vision of Christ touches Daniel and speaks words to him. And he says, don't be afraid. Actually, in the original language, it says you're highly esteemed. You're, you're special. You're, you're favored by God is another way to look at it. Peace and be strong. Shalom. That's the result of having our sin removed. Amen? Ultimately, when God speaks peace into our lives, the reason he speaks peace into our lives is twofold. Number one, we have peace with God. When God gives me peace, I now have peace with God. The only way I can have that peace with God is my sins have to be forgiven and the penalty of them has to be dealt with because God is perfectly just. And once I have peace with God, then I can have peace with everyone else. But if I don't first have peace with God, then my peace with everyone else is also affected. And so this is peace with the Lord and it's also peace with my fellow man. That's the type of peace that Jesus talked about. And so the only way I can stand before God, the only way I can hear from God is to be in that kind of peace. That's what happens when my sins are cleansed. That is why Isaiah 41, when we get there, will say, fear not. I am with you. Don't be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I'll help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. You see, if I try and do those things in my own strength, or if I try and religiously work my way to God, I'm going to fall so far short, the first thing that's going to go away is my peace. I'm going to know that it's not sufficient. My own effort won't get me there. And in fact, I believe that is the whole focus of why Jesus said what he said there in John 14. So after he makes this incredible statement, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, by the time you get to that the end of that chapter, Jesus actually says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives you peace do I give you. Don't let your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The reason Jesus' peace is different is because Jesus' peace was peace with God. It wasn't just the absence of conflict. Everything wasn't just rosy and all of a sudden nobody had any problems. It's that the warfare was ended with God. And only when you've been touched by Jesus is that your reality. Otherwise, you're still at war with God. 
without that covering of the, of the blood of Christ, then my sins remain and ultimately I'm going to be judged by those sins. Thus they're forgiven. Notice the warfare that this man goes through. And this is some insight and it tags along nicely with our passage from this morning in Luke's gospel. Because around every part of this world is an invisible battle, goes on behind the scenes, it's outside of our sight, it's not within our purview to be able to actually gaze upon it. But probably some of you experienced a little bit of that. Maybe you had something going on this afternoon and it's like you're going to come to church tonight and all of a sudden your life just starts to come unhinged and crazy things begin to happen and there's these effects. Maybe you're, you know, there's something going on with your children or something happens in your life and it's just like I'm trying to get to church and all of a sudden there's just no way that's going to happen. Why? Because there's a battle going on. There's a battle raging for your soul that Paul talks about as he writes to the church in the book of Ephesians. As we mentioned this morning, there, there is an invisible realm, and in that invisible realm exist demons, hosts of them, heavenly hosts of wickedness. And so this man answers basically his own rhetorical question. It's like, why am I here? What am I doing? What is the reason for my visit? Do you not know why I've come? Soon I must return to fight against the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. And then against the spirit prince of the kingdom of Greece. Now, this is a strange phrase, but it's actually easy to understand. Because behind every despot ruler, there's someone driving the actual bus. And that someone has been the same one from time immemorial. That is the one that we will see when we get to chapter 14, the fall of Lucifer. Behind the king of Persia and behind the king of Greece and behind the Caesars of Rome and behind Adolf Hitler and behind Saddam Hussein and behind every despotic ruler that's ever existed throughout time, especially those ones that have hindered the work of the Lord, and the children of Israel, very specifically, behind them is a spiritual prince. Not a spirit prince specifically like one specific spirit prince of Persia. But in a very general sense, every one of them had someone pulling the puppet strings behind that invisible curtain we called the spirit realm. And so there is a spirit prince in that sense, just like there is the spirit of the Antichrist. There is a spirit realm, and in that spirit realm is where this battle is going to occur. And so this particular, this particular man, whom I believe is Jesus himself, is going to fight against the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now that would put this battle as a battle between Jesus and Satan himself. That there is someone driving the spiritual realm the wrong direction. There, there is someone leading the army, that heavenly host of wickedness, those fallen angels that we're going to find out when Satan fell, a third of the stars of heaven fell with him. And so he says, do you not want to know why I've come? Because right after this, I'm going to go back and do battle because Persia is going to turn on you. And after Persia turns on you, Greece is going to turn on you. 
And what we're going to find out is these kingdoms that we saw in chapters 2 and 6 and 7, these kingdoms are going to rise up one right after another. And I'm going to tell you that it's going to be written in the book of truth. Now, people will often say, well, what is this book of truth? And there's an answer, I believe, to that. But basically what he's saying is, and again, a little bit of insight into the original language is helpful here. And basically he says in, in the English modern translation of this, before I do that, I will tell you what's inscribed in the book of truth. A little different word. Now, we, even now, anybody remember when people used to actually write letters? Actual letters on paper with a writing instrument. You remember when you used to, act, used to actually have to practice handwriting in school? I think you still have to do that. But does anybody know anybody that actually writes much of anything anymore? We send e-greeting cards, we, we send emails, we send texts. We don't even write anymore, we send emojis, right? Like, how you doing, bro? Smiley face, happy face, thumbs up, thumbs down, you know, whatever. We, we, that's how we communicate. But during this day and time, they inscribed stuff that was important. And there's an important difference here that's in view. Because the truth of the matter is, what God's word has said, it's always said. The truth contained in it has always been true. And so whether there, has, whether there was then, which there wasn't, a fully complete Bible, there was not a fully complete Bible yet, the truths contained within the Bible were already true. Everything that you have in your lap was true in eternity past, it's true today, and it will be true in eternity future. And so it's a picture of the truth that is contained within the word of God, not referring directly to what we would call the canon of scripture. It's not just contained within the first five books or the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, the Torah to the Jewish people, not just the Tanakh or what we would call most of the Old Testament. And it's not what we would call our English Bible, the totality of it, including the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's every single thing that is always going to be true about God and his relationship with everything in the entire universe. And so the book of truth might be kind of the totality of the knowledge that God has that we are not privy to on this earth, but it would also include everything in your Bible. So whatever is in your Bible would be also in this book called the book of truth. Wasn't written. It could be God's plan for the ages. It could have some information that we're still not privy to. It could be some of the, the books that uh, maybe we will learn about when we get there. I don't know, but I know this. If it was true then, it's true now. And if it's true now, it'll be true when we get to heaven. Interesting word that's used here, inscribed. Because we live in a, a world that uses a lot of magnetic or digital data. Things get transmitted from place to place to place. Anybody ever marvel at the speed? Uh, I, I can WhatsApp people in South America and carry on a conversation with them while they're walking their dog somewhere in Colombia. 
instantaneously. If I wanted to get somebody something that really mattered from my heart, you see, I can actually call them. I can now FaceTime them. Anybody kind of cool with that? You know, you pick up your phone, turn on FaceTime. You're like, hi, how you doing? You're actually staring at their face. But back then, communication, if you really wanted to preserve it, it was inscribed. It was normally done on tablets of stone. Um, It could also be done on tablets of wax. It could be done in clay. But an inscription was something that was permanent and it could not be changed. It was permanent and it couldn't be changed. And the reason we know that is we still have inscriptions from this day and time. Now, if you try and take out, anybody have like some books that are a couple hundred years old? I have quite a few books in my library that are more than 200 years old. Actual books. You cannot even open them. If you open them, they will crack, fracture. The spine of the book will completely disintegrate in your hand. And in fact, the pages are so brittle that no matter how wonderful the book is, no matter how expensive it was when it was first published and printed, um, it would still not hold up. Just 200 years old. And yet we have inscriptions that are the better part of 3,000 years old. And they're still legible. We can still read them. So an inscription was a way for us to understand something that was extremely important that God wanted us to always have. And I believe what has happened is God has just announced to us that there's going to be an ongoing spiritual fight against the princes of darkness. And he inscribed this battle we would then get a number of other things from the Lord that would tell us about what's going on. We'd end up with the book of Ephesians. We'd end up with the book of Revelation. We would end up with the writings of Zechariah. We would end up also getting those words that would come from Ezekiel the prophet and Jeremiah the prophet. We would get the words of Isaiah the prophet, these things that were spoken about what the world would look like as we get towards the end. And all of this was inscribed in God's unchangeable word. And so the Lord himself is saying, there are going to be things that are inscribed in heaven that you're going to have knowledge of. They are yet future and they are completely unchangeable. These truths are going to happen. Uh, And so the word noted or written may be used in your Bible if you have a New King James that's written. But to emphasize this, the force of this Hebrew word kata, which in the verb form is kate, if you, if you look at it, it, it just simply says, look, this is exactly what's going to happen and no one can change it. And I'm giving you information in advance. I'm telling you what's going to happen. And of course we know because we now have gone through the history of the Greek people. We've gone through the history of the Persian people. We have a way to access that information. But God personally inscribed what was going to happen and says, Daniel, I'm going to give you some stuff that is from heaven. That word is going to be from the Lord. It's not going to be from man. It isn't something that you can go you know, research and find out. An example of this, this very thing was what happened to Moses when he was on Mount Sinai, right? He, he goes up and when the Lord had finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, 
he gave them, he gave him two what? Tablets. What did he do? He inscribed with his own finger the Ten Commandments on them, right? And he said, here they are. How long did they last? Indefinitely. Even though we don't know where they are right now, that's one of the three things that's inside of the Ark of the Covenant. If we ever find the Ark of the Covenant, one of those things is going to be the two, those two stone tablets that were given to Moses. The other is Aaron's rod that budded. The other, the third, the final thing is the pot that contains the manna that sustained the children of Israel while they wandered in, the, in Egypt. So three things inside of the Ark of the Covenant. And one of them is an inscription, the exact same word, ketah. The Jewish people were constantly having these types of experiences with the Lord. In Deuteronomy 27, the Jewish people were told to set up great stones and plaster them with plaster and inscribe on them the words of the law. In other words, they didn't want the word of the Lord to get away. David would write, forever, O Lord, is your word settled in heaven there in the 119th Psalm. That whole Psalm, by the word, is a Psalm about the word of God. Every single verse has a reference to something that is equivalent to the word or it actually says the word itself. Jesus himself reminds us of this, that book of truth that's being exposed to Daniel's understanding. As Daniel hears these words for the first time, I think Jesus alludes to this there in Matthew chapter 24. Now this is his great discourse on the very last days, on the end times. We call it the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is speaking about what's going to transpire that still hasn't transpired yet in its fullness, even in our time. Jesus says that during that time, during those last days, the heaven and the earth will pass away. And then Peter in 2 Peter adds that that passing away would occur with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. But Jesus said the heavens and the earth will pass away. Peter adds to it as the earth is in essence, melted, but God's words won't pass away. Even though the earth passes away itself, even though the heavens are rolled up like a scroll, as we find out in the book of Revelation, Peter would add to it, but your word endures forever. The word by which the gospel was preached unto you, that is an inscription that God is going to have stand. And so Daniel's being told about the sanctity of God's word. He said, look, what you're, what you're going to have given to you, Daniel, is so important it's going to be inscribed by the hand of God. And it's for a future time. Now imagine at the very end of days when the universe itself is reconfigured to whatever God wants to do in the very last days, when the heavens and the earth pass away, all of a sudden they're popping out into this new existence is the word of the Lord. The same book that Daniel has referenced in heaven is going to still stand. Even though the universe is recreated. And to me what this really means is that God's truth matters. We were having a discussion today right before, I think it was second service, might have been before first, but we were talking about it. And I have to tell you, it is a little bit grievous and I don't mean to draw attention to the fault of our brothers and sisters in Christ, but I think it's important for us to understand. The Episcopalian Church just voted in their first homosexual bishop, and their whole 
argument is based on Jesus never said that homosexuality was wrong. Now, unfortunately, that means they actually don't know their Bibles, but it also means that they do not believe what is said there because Jesus actually talked about this very thing when he said if Sodom and Gomorrah had repented, then God would have relented against destroying them. So Jesus made that reference. And so they take this and go back to the book of Genesis and say that the people in Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because they were inhospitable, because they weren't nice to these two angels that came. Now, you can't read that in any language and come to that conclusion. It's not possible. It is just an ethereal thought. It's just like we want it to say this, so to us, this is what it says. And so when you skip over the truth of God's word, you come to conclusions about all kinds of things that are false. And before you know it, you're going down a road to where God's word doesn't any longer matter. You make it up as you go. Now for me, I just take what God's word says, and if God's word says it, I believe it, and as the old saying goes, that settles it. That's the end of that particular conversation as far as I'm concerned. But because they don't respect it, Because people still to this day don't want to believe that God is actually going to do what he says he's going to do. You see, a lot of people believe in the end just everyone's going to get saved. Your Bible doesn't teach that. And so Daniel is getting this picture of the seriousness of understanding God's word. That God's truth matters. There would be no reason for us to evangelize. If, let, me, let me put it to you this way. Why would Jesus tell anyone to go make disciples if in the end everyone is automatically a disciple? Why would Jesus have us to go preach the gospel to every living, breathing creature if it meant nothing to do so? If he was just simply going to save everyone in the end? Why would Jesus tell us that it is enough that you believe if you don't need to believe to be saved? Because everyone gets saved in the end. You see the importance of understanding God's word? It is God's word that centers you on the truth of things that you might not otherwise understand. Because here's the truth for all human beings. I think everyone wants everyone to go to heaven. Amen? That's actually a human view. That, that's how most of us would go, I don't want anybody to perish. And neither does God. But nonetheless, God said... Unless a man be born again, he shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen? That's what God's word says. So God's word matters. You can't just make it up as you go. You have to believe the truth. It's the truth that sets you free. It's not a loving lie that sets people free. It's not concluding that you know better than God and changing the rules mid-game. Mid God's truth is absolutely in view here. And frankly, that's precisely why we have some problems with groups that profess themselves to be Christians. That's why Mormons preach another Jesus. That's why Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that Jesus is God. 
The Bible plainly states what the Bible plainly states, but they don't believe what the Bible says. They believe what the Book of Mormon says. So to the Mormon, he becomes the elder brother. He becomes one of God's many sons, not God's only son. It's just a tiny little word. We either believe the truth of what God's word says or we don't. As the Lord speaks into our lives on a daily basis, we can't allow the preaching of another gospel, one that is not the one that's contained within Scripture. And sometimes people will come and say, well, you know, we just need to believe everything. You know, all roads lead to heaven. No, they don't. Daniel was being instructed in that very thought. Like, truth matters. The book of truth that's in heaven is the book of truth. It's not suggestions. It's truth. Paul would write to the church at Corinth. They're in 2 Corinthians, a book that we finished not long ago. And said to them, he said, look, you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. In other words, that truth would be inscribed in human beings as well as they understood the the good news of the gospel. That's why Jeremiah, speaking of the Jewish people, said, I'll put my law on their inward parts, in their heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. He's saying, look, truth matters. God's word is truth. That's why it's so important that we have an understanding of what our Bibles actually says. Some final closing thoughts for you. The Bible is the most hotly contested book of all time. It is the most accosted book of all time. It is also the best-selling book of all time about tenfold, the next closest competitor. There's a reason for that, because God has divinely inspired it and God has divinely preserved it. That's why Paul, as he wrote to his Pastor in training, Timothy, there in 2 Timothy chapter 2, said that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, the woman of God, people of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished for every single good work. If you want to know what God wants you to do, you're going to find that in the word of God. You're going to get instructed. You're going to get proper doctrine there. You're going to get corrected. You're going to be told when you're right. You're going to be told when you're wrong by reading the scriptures. And so as we have access to so many good English translations, and there are a bunch of them, each one of them has some minor difficulties in them. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about the King James, the New King James, the New Living Translation, the New American Standard, the English Standard, or the Nearly Inspired Version, or the New International Version. You guys are so asleep you didn't even understand that I said the Nearly Inspired Version. <laughs> no, it's the New International Version. It's just in modern English. Each one of those has translational difficulties because you're talking about transliterating, going from one language to another language, and that doesn't always work. 
There isn't a perfect English word for every single Greek word, and there isn't a perfect Greek word for every single English word. And so you, you can't make often a very specific point by simply transliterating, going from one language to another language. Now imagine that you're taking Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. You're translating those first into Latin, then into German, and then from German to English, and then from Old English to Modern English, you're going to have some words that don't quite fly. But most of your English translations are very accurate. And that's why when you read there in Revelation chapter 1, it says, blessed is he who reads, those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. We, we want to be students of the scriptures. Daniel was persistent in prayer. He was a persistent student of the things that God spoke in his life. And because of that, he was also a mighty weapon for the Lord. If he was not a student of the voice of God, and remember his situation is a little different. He's getting direct input from God himself. But we have direct input when we read the scriptures. Why? Because the Bible says that this came from God, inspired by God, written by God. That's why when you take a book like this, I don't know if you've ever imagined you know, sitting there looking at your Bible, but this took 1,500 years to write. It's 66 individual books. It's 40 different authors who lived in over a hundred different cultures that people have been trying to find contradiction and controversy in for about 2,000 years. And nobody has come up with a single thing. I've looked at every single known argument and, and problem, supposed problem or contradiction that anyone has ever come up with with the Bible and I have not yet found a single one that there isn't an answer for. Not one. Now, I don't know how you span 1,500 years and get 40 people to write a single book that is unified in its message, that contains no errors, that insofar as it's spoken to hundreds of pieces of information about a guy who wasn't born yet, but specifically details his life, his birth, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and the works that he would do before he did them, and that that would be accurate, I have complete accuracy that this came from God. I, I, I believe that the information contained within it could only have come from heaven. Because no human being could have written this, much less human beings. Amen? That's why I believe this is true. But God gave it to people who trust in him, believe him. That's why when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he says, yet when I'm among mature believers, speaking there in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, verse 6, I do speak with words of wisdom, but not the kind of wisdom that belongs to the world, not the kind that appeals to the rulers of the world. You see, when you talk about the Bible to the rulers of the world, they're like, eh, that's just a religious book. The Bible says about itself, this is truth. That this came from God, it's for his people, and his people are the ones that understand it. 
who are being brought up to nothing. Anybody run into any Greeks recently? And I mean Greeks as in people from the Greek culture. How about Romans? Assyrians? Babylonians? Medes? Persians? Any of those people? Every last one of those people group, they've ceased to exist. You won't find them anymore. You can find the evidences of their culture and praise God for those things. But they've all come to nothing. Every last one of them. It's exactly what your Bible says about the kingdoms of the world. That at the end, God's word's going to stand and every single culture that's ever existed on the face of the earth eventually will run its course. Including the one that we live in, by the way. There's going to be an end to the United States of America. I can't tell you when it is. I'm not prophesying that our doom is near. But I'm telling you, we're not going to last forever. Lexus de Tocqueville was right. He said, when people figure out they can give themselves gifts, they're not long for this world. Paul would go on to say, no, the wisdom we speak of is the secret wisdom of God. Which was hidden in former times. Jewish people didn't see it in Babylon. Though he made it for our benefit before the world began. That would be why it was the book of truth that was in heaven. But the rulers of this world have not understood it. For if they had, they would have never crucified the glorious Lord. This is a battle for truth. It's a battle for understanding of the things of God. And Daniel is about to get a vision of the future that lies still future for the most part. And involves his people. We're told who it's for. It says for his people. We're told that it is future. And so just like Daniel, if we prevail in persistent prayer, if we resist the devil, he'll flee. If we keep praying, even when it doesn't seem like those prayers are affecting the things that we want them to affect, you know, because God answers prayers those three ways, one of which we hate, yes, no, and of course, wait. I'm not yet ready to answer that. I have my reasons why I withheld that answer or not answered in this time. I think Daniel saw what we will see. God sticks his hand underneath our chin and lifts our chin up and says, be strengthened. It's going to be okay. I got this. In the end, we win. Amen? So rest in him. Trust in him. Have a hunger for his word. And remember that his word is not a book of good suggestions. It is the book of truth. And it was inscribed by God. It rests in heaven. We have copies of it on earth. And if you lean on it, it won't let you down. Amen? Would you stand and we'll close in prayer. Praise the Lord. Don't let the enemy get in your head. Because there's a lot of talk going around our country and around this world that we who call ourselves believers in the Lord are maybe one of the biggest problems, if not the biggest problem that the world has. The biggest problem the world has is sin. The one who instills that and causes us to hunger after it 
Uh, we know as our adversary, the enemy, the devil himself, Satan. And those who stand against him are going to come under fire. You're going to take some bullets if you're going to do what Daniel did, which is to stand when other people bowed. And so be brave. Be bold. The Lord is with us. What did, he, what did Daniel hear? Be strong. Be courageous. That's what Joshua heard. Be strong. Be courageous. The Lord is with you. Father, we thank you for that strength that we have in you. Pray that we wouldn't surrender. We wouldn't give up. We wouldn't yield a bit of ground. We'd give no quarter to the enemy. That when the enemy comes and presses in like a flood, or he tries to get us to back away from the truth, Lord, that truth would even be brighter, louder, stronger. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us. Thank you for the life of Daniel. That's such an example of a man of prayer who was steadfast and immovable, was always abounding in, in that labor for you. He knew it wasn't in vain. May we know the same. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It is truth. And we announce to the world it's truth, and we're just going to believe it. And so God bless us as we live our lives for you. Strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.